Good everyone. I'll pray so that God's word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself so wonderfully to us in your Son uh, and by your word. And we pray that now uh, we will listen to you speak. So help us not to be distracted, but instead help us to listen carefully, seek to understand your word correctly, uh, and then live by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's sort of generally uh, agreed around the world at the moment that uh, there is a lack of great leaders in our world at this time. Uh, People look around at the leaders of all the countries in the world at the moment and people don't think this is the generation where we're going to look back and say they are the great ones who gave the great speeches and all that sort of thing. Uh, Although I do sometimes wonder if people in every generation think that about their leaders and you need a bit of time to work out whether they had anything useful to say. But anyway... uh, Nehemiah really is one of the great leaders of history. He's one of the men who uh, people now look back at and say he was a great one. He was a great leader. Uh, So much so that you can find all sorts of books on how to lead like Nehemiah. So this week I just did a search on the internet uh, and I found books called Leading Like Nehemiah, 10 Leadership Lessons with Nehemiah and so on and so forth. All these different books. Uh, And in today's passage we're going to see lots of the reasons why people think he was such a great leader and why he's someone to base yourself on if you want to be a leader. Uh, and we could certainly do a lot worse than follow Nehemiah's example. Uh, but if we just treated this book as a leadership lesson, if, if my sermon today was just 10 leadership lessons with Nehemiah, I, I think we'd miss the point. Because Nehemiah is only a leader to follow in so much as he points us forward to the greatest leader who we follow, which is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we always have to remember the Old Testament is always pointing us forward to Jesus. That's its first job. That's the first thing uh, it must always do. So it's sort of like when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, when he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, well, in the same way, we can imitate Nehemiah, but only so much as he imperfectly points us to Jesus, who is the one we really want to imitate. Uh, And that's what I want to show us today in these chapters. I want to show us how Nehemiah points us forward to Christ and how we need to imitate him. So let's get into it. Now, why was uh, Nehemiah considered such a great leader? Well, uh, we're looking mainly at chapter 5 tonight, but you need to flick over to chapter 6 that we didn't read before to see this. So flick over to chapter 6, and you go to verse 15, and it said, The wall was completed in 52 days. Now, without wanting to cause alarm for anyone, do you know that today is exactly 52 days to Christmas? There you go. So isn't that wonderful? Uh, But if that freaks you out and you're the sort of person who thinks, I need at least three months to prepare for Christmas, to buy all those presents and do all that sort of thing, well, one, come and have a lesson with me about how to just go and buy a Christmas presents the day before Christmas and I'll teach you how to do that. Uh, But two, consider Nehemiah took a tiny little group of returned exiles and managed to get them in 52 days to build a wall around three kilometres long around the city of Jerusalem. So I think you can get your Christmas shopping done. Uh, And he did that while they all had to work literally with one hand because they were defending themselves uh, against people attacking them from all sides. So he actually told us in previous chapters, remember, they have a sword in one hand and they're sort of putting bricks on the wall with, with the other hand and yet they did this in 52 days. Even their enemies were amazed. They said, this just isn't possible what they have achieved building this wall around Jerusalem. Look at chapter 6 verse 16. It says, when all our enemies heard this, All the surrounding nations were intimidated 
lost their confidence for they realised that this task had been accomplished by our God. So it's sort of like they're saying, Nehemiah could only do this if God was on his side. This is some sort of miracle. God must really be with this man, Nehemiah, to achieve this. So it's because of that great achievement that Nehemiah is seen as such a great leader. Now, it was a massive achievement, but there was also a massive cost in what he did. Uh, There was collateral damage, and that's actually often true of great leaders, great sort of leaders in our world, even great leaders in our church sometimes, where they get so focused on getting something great done that they don't notice the collateral damage that happens to people as they get the great thing done. And so if you go back now to chapter 5, Nehemiah has to deal with the collateral damage. Uh, But I think the way he deals with it shows us what a great leader does. So come with me. So what was the issue? Well, the issue was in their focus on getting the wall built, many of his people are starving. So look at verse 1. It says, There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying... We, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. So they had to make sacrifices to get this wall built. They hadn't been able to plant their crops because they'd been building the wall. They'd, they'd used up all the grain they had stored building. The, you can sort of imagine them saying to Nehemiah, hey, we're, we're totally with you, Nehemiah. We, we totally understand we had to build this wall to protect ourselves from the enemies. We're totally committed. We're not complaining, but you can't eat a wall. We need food if we're going to live. We need food to feed our families, to feed our children. But it was worse than that because some of them were losing their homes and their farms just to get enough to eat. So look at verse 3. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. See, they weren't just not eating now. They were going to lose their farms forever. They were not going to be able to eat next year or the year after. They they were becoming permanently destitute. Now, that is horrible in any country at any time. Uh, And I hope at the moment you're praying for farmers in Australia who are in situations like this. You know, people who've had to mortgage their farms just to plant crops that they hope rain will come because if they don't get a harvest, the banks will come and repossess their farms. We need to pray for farmers in Australia at the moment. But it was even worse for these Jews... It was even worse because they had actually just come back from slavery. They'd just come back from exile and they had been given their little parcel, their little part of the promised land and now they're going to lose it just because they need it, need the money to pay their taxes and feed their family. But it gets even worse again because they're even at the point now of selling their children into slavery Can you imagine how low you would have to be to get to that point? But uh, look at verse 5. It says, We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So you see how bad things were. If you have nothing else to sell, sadly, in the ancient world, you then sell yourself. That's what you had to do. If you can't pay your debts, you became a slave or your children became slaves. But even worse, look at that verse again, do you see who is doing this to them? It's not some multinational company, it's not some big bad bank doing it to them, it's not even some Persian invader, it's their fellow Jews doing it to them. It's their brothers and sisters in Christ coming in 
and making slaves of their own brothers and sisters. So there's the issue. People are starving, but even worse, fellow Jews are taking advantage of that to take their land and their children. So what's Nehemiah going to do? Well, let's see his response. If you look in your outline, I've put three parts of his response. And the first part is, Nehemiah gets angry about it. He gets angry at the injustice. He gets angry at the ungodliness. So look at verse 6. He says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. See, injustice and ungodliness, especially from within the people of God, should make us angry. When you hear of people who claim they are Christians doing awful things, it should make you angry. And you can't help but think of Jesus' anger at the Pharisees for the way they were distorting the Word of God and putting a burden on people. Uh, Or Jesus' anger when He went into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and said, you've turned God's house, you've turned my Father's house into a den of robbers. Or for that matter, it's like the Apostle Paul's anger at the false teachers who distort the Word of God in the book of Galatians. And and, and like Jesus' anger and like Paul's anger, Nehemiah's anger is righteous. It's a righteous anger at sin. There is a godly anger. There is an anger that is at sin and injustice that is true and right. But it's only true and right when it's anger on behalf of God and on behalf of other people, rather than on behalf of yourself. Second thing about Nehemiah, though, is in his anger, Nehemiah does not sin. So you see, 99 times out of 100, my anger is not righteous. You might be more godly than me, it might be 98 for you, but 99 for me, it's because of my selfishness. That's why I get angry. That's why I get angry all the time. And even when it's not, even in that one in a hundred where it's righteous anger, when I get angry, I sin. I act hastily. I I, I speak harshly. I, I say things I regret. Nehemiah, though, in his anger, is slow to speak. So look at the start of verse 7. It says, after seriously considering the matter. So he gets angry, but then he slows down. And he seriously considers it. He doesn't rush in. It's like the book of James encourages us. James chapter 1, verse 19. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That is a great lesson to learn. Be slow to speak. Slow down. Test whether your anger really is righteous. Test whether your anger is justified. Think before you speak. Thirdly, though... Nehemiah leads the people in repentance. See, having weighed it all up, Nehemiah calls the wealthy people together and he calls the elders together and he calls the nobles together and he challenges them to change. He challenges them to repent. And it's really interesting, just jump down to verse 10. It's like he also recognises, I'm not free from sin. He says, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending the money and grain. I don't think he was involved in the excessive things they'd been doing, but this is a lesson in how to challenge someone, is to recognise your own sin, recognise that you're not perfect, that's what Nehemiah does. But what does his call for repentance look like? I want to look first at what it looked like for them, but then I actually want to put it on us as well and think about us. So look at verse 7, the first thing he does is he points out the heart of the problem. He says, I accuse the nobles and officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. Now we think, what is wrong with charging interest? 
you know, it's the only way you can get a house in Sydney. If you're ever going to buy a house in Sydney, you'll probably have to get a mortgage. You'll probably have to pay interest. But here, this is not charging interest to help your brothers and sisters upgrade from a three-bedroom home to a four-bedroom home. This is not charging interest so they can put a granny flat on the back or build a pool or something like that. This is charging interest on people who are borrowing to survive. You do not make money out of other people's misery. That's the point. Especially when it's your brothers and sisters. That was the heart of this sin, profiting from other people's misfortune. In our world, this is sadly what high interest lenders do to people. This is what pawnbrokers do to people. Or for that matter, this is what people who gain money from poker machines do to people. They profit from other people's misery. And so look at verse 8. He says, So I called a large assembly against them and said, We've done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who are sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. See, it was even worse because they had actually just worked so hard to bring these people back from slavery. They'd bought some of these people back from exile by paying for them to be released. How can you now put them back into slavery? Now, it is always bad to profit from someone else's misery, and especially bad at this moment in Israel's history. But what drives Nehemiah even more to deal with this is the fact that what they were doing was dishonouring God. And especially it was dishonouring God in the eyes of the nations watching on. So look at verse 9. It says, Then I said, What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? So he's saying, if you fear God, you won't do this. Because God will judge you for it. But more than that, what does this say to the people outside of Israel? What does this say? If God's people treat each other like this, then what do the Persians looking in think about our God? And what do the Arabs looking in think about our God? You know, do they say, is that what the God of Israel is like? A God who encourages people to take advantage of their brothers and sisters. And so Nehemiah says, no more charging interest, no more gaining a profit. More than that, if you've repossessed any any person's farm or any person's home or any person's vineyard or whatever it is, give it back, give the olive grove back, give the vineyard back, give the farm back and more than that, give them back any money you have earned from their farm or their vineyard or whatever it is. And in a wonderful rare moment for people who know their Old Testaments well, the people universally repent and do it and give it all back. It's sort of like Zacchaeus, you know the story of when Zacchaeus meets Jesus And Jesus shows him forgiveness. And what does Zacchaeus do? He says, I'm going to pay back four times what I've stolen from people. That's what repentance looks like. When we're truly repentant, it doesn't just mean we say sorry. It means we make amends. We seek to fix what we've broken. That was what they had to do. And we've learned from Nehemiah's leadership. But how does what happened there teach us as the New Testament people of God? Well, I hope that no Christian here would take advantage of anyone in the way these people did. Especially, I hope, no one would take advantage of their brothers and sisters in Christ in the way these people did. My father was a banker. And I remember when I first learned how interest worked. And I worked out that I could lend my brother money and charge exorbitant interest rates 
And because my dad was a banker, he had to back me up if I wanted the money back and the interest. It's not wrong for Christians to loan money. You can be a Christian and a banker. But charging desperate people exorbitant rates, that is something no Christian should be involved in. And sadly, over the years, I have seen Christians for whom that has not been logical. Sadly, over the years, I've seen Christians who've got involved in loan shark schemes and and in owning businesses with poker machines and all those sort of things that take advantage of people in their misery. On the other side, it's not wrong to have a mortgage. I speak to many here who are not yet at this point and maybe in the future, too many Christians put themselves into slavery by the mortgages they take out to buy a house. Too many Christians make themselves slaves to Mr Westpac or Mr Commonwealth by borrowing too much for a house they can't really afford. That is not a wise way to live. We are slaves of Christ, not slaves of banks. But the real application to us here is this, when a brother or sister in Christ is in need, when one of these people in here is in need, we don't think about how can we get something out of this, we just help, that's what we do, we just give and we don't demand anything in return. Christians are not socialists, we don't sell everything we have and put it in a common pool. Sometimes I like that idea because I'd get to decide where the money went and I'd build a pool at the rectory but that's what I'd do with the common pool but anyway, there will always be some people in our church who have more and some people who have less and that is not a bad thing, that is right and proper but those with more have a greater obligation to care for those with less. That's just part of what it is to be a part of the people of God and where a brother or sister with less is in genuine need, we help them with no thought of getting anything in return. Just look at all these calls on us in the New Testament and I've cut it down to four. I had 16 to start with but I thought I'll just pick the top four. Look at this because I didn't want to be here till nine o'clock. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share for God is pleased with such sacrifices. James 1 27 that I think is very powerful, says pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Or Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. The point is, if you know the wonderful generosity of Jesus, and I pray every one of us here does, if you know how generous Jesus has been to you, then generosity and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ will just be the natural thing. We'll just be radically generous, that's what we'll be because we'll see it's not an extra thing, it's actually the very essence of what it is to live as a disciple of Jesus. And just like in Nehemiah's time, it's by our generosity and our love for others that we show that we truly fear the Lord. And just like Nehemiah's time, it is a wonderful witness to our world. When the outside world looks in and they look at your life and they say, he's a Christian, he's part of that church that meets at Carlton, 
She goes to that St. George North Church. When they look in and they see that not only do we not take advantage of one another, like so many in our world do, but more than that, we go over the top in caring for one another. When they see that we're generous to one another, self-sacrificially costly generous to one another, when they see that, they say, I want to know the God they serve. They say, if Jesus makes people like that, then tell me about Jesus. It's an incredible witness to our world when we are generous to one another, when we love one another. And it's a terrible witness to our world when we don't. But now I want to come back to Nehemiah to close, because there's one last aspect of his leadership that's so important to see, and that is self-sacrifice. See, Nehemiah was the governor, and that meant that he had the right to claim taxes for himself. I have a, uh, uh, I have a little joke I have here at church, where I talk about the little-known doctrine of the senior minister's privilege. And that is, if anyone leaves a can of Coke in that fridge over in the hall, and I see it, it's mine. Now, that's how a governor in the ancient world... That's a joke, but I do take your coke if you leave it there, so don't (laughs) do it. Uh, Now you're warned. But Nehemiah was the governor. He had the right to claim taxes for himself. That's the way it worked. The king said, "Get get the taxes they owe me and then get a bit for yourself on the top. And he had the right to have lavish meals provided for him every day. And it was just expected he would take advantage of people and buy their land if he wanted it at a cheap price. That is what every governor before him had done and what every governor after him did. Come with me now to verse 14. I'm just going to read it out and listen to how Nehemiah was different. It said, Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year, that is 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. Verse 15. The governors who preceded me had heavenly burdened the people, taking food and wine from them, as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but I didn't do this because of the fear of God. Or verse 18, each day one ox, six choice sheep and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days, but I did not demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. See how powerful that is? And it's powerful if you've ever worked. It's powerful because you've probably had bosses who say, hey, you've got to stay late and finish that. And then you walk around to their office and they're not there. And you've had bosses who take the big bonus, but then explain, oh, things haven't gone well enough this year for you to get a pay rise. And no one looks up to that type of leader. No one works hard for that type of leader. No one goes the extra mile. Even secular books on leadership have worked this out. They say the leaders that inspire people are servant leaders with absolutely no sense of irony that they're talking about people who follow the example of Christ. See, even the secular world says, if you want to be a good leader, make your people think you care about them. Notice they say, make your people think you care about them. That's anyway. It's the leaders who will get down in the trenches and do what they ask other people to do that inspire people. It's the leaders who people see they are willing to make the same sacrifices they ask me to make who inspire people. And of course, that must point us forward to the great servant leader, our Lord Jesus. Mark 10, 45, you know it well. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, that, that is servant leadership. Not demanding glory 
but giving it up, even to the point of dying in our place. And of course, that is our model for leadership in our church, isn't it? I hope in your, in your gospel teams, you've been looking at Titus, and you see it there in the qualifications for an elder or an overseer in the church of God. This is what we look for in people we want to appoint to positions of authority in the church or leadership. People who are already serving without caring what they get in return. People who make sacrifices for others and don't ask for any reward. That is the type of person we want to see as leaders in the people of God. I actually thought all week about whether to share this or not, but in the end I decided it's helpful because it's not talking about me, it's talking about others. Uh, Do you know that over the years many of our staff here at St George North have made large financial sacrifices to stay and work here? They never share that with anyone, so I'm sharing it with you. I'm not talking about me, as I said, I'm talking about others. Some of our staff have voluntarily taken less than they could to work here uh, so that we can afford to have the team of people working amongst us that we do. That's one reason I love our team here so much. Uh, Please be aware of that. That's what shows that they are great leaders. See, the great leaders are not the people who say, look at me, the great leaders are the people who say, I'm willing to sacrifice to serve. That's just what godly leaders do. And this isn't just relevant to church leadership, by the way, though please apply this if you are involved in any leadership in the church. But this is what Christian leaders should look like in their workplaces. This is what Christian leaders should look like in their schools, in their wherever it is you have any position of authority or leadership. See, in your hospital, in your office, in your school, wherever you lead others, this is how we honour God in our work, by being servant leaders by following Jesus. It's a wonderful added bonus that you will then generally do better in your work if you lead like this because people will want to work for you and people will want to work with you, people will respect you more but ultimately like Nehemiah you don't do it for that reason, you do it because it glorifies God. But remember in the end we are not following Nehemiah as inspiring as he is, you're not following your minister, you can decide how inspiring he is, we follow Christ As the Apostle Paul says, listen to Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That's leadership and that is a leader worth following. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the way Nehemiah was such an inspiring, godly leader. But more than anything, we thank you for the way he points us forward to Jesus, who was willing to come, even though he deserved to be served, but instead he came to serve, even to the point of dying for us. And we pray that as followers of Jesus, we too might be servants. In the light of today's passage, we also pray that our congregation here might be marked by our generosity that we might be people who never look for how we can take advantage of others, but instead always look to how we can help and serve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.